This conference will now be recorded. Right, good afternoon and welcome to uh, our session on reasonable attorney's fees and justice courts. Uh, we have done this before. This is the first time we're doing this as a webinar, uh, which has the benefit of being posted in YouTube and a uh, podcast as well. As I told everyone before we started, uh, please, uh, if you're going to leave your camera on, then you are hearing on YouTube, and please make sure that if your camera's on, you're paying attention. Uh, otherwise, I may turn your camera off. If you're not actively speaking, please mute yourself. Uh, if you're on the phone and I, and I have to mute you, then you won't be able to ask questions. If you do want to ask a question, pop in at any time, turn on your camera, and ask away. We also do have the chat box function. If you want to put something in the chat box, uh, go ahead and do that, and, and I'll ask those questions of Steve. Uh, I'll remind everyone we are being recorded, so you, uh, you might want to be careful about any questions that you have uh, that will be recorded. Uh, and I can um, stop the recording at some point if, if there are questions that people uh, may feel more comfortable asking uh, without this being recorded. Uh, but let's go ahead and start our presentation. And as always, the materials are going to be found in Hightail. Uh, but Steve Gattel, uh, I, Steve, I've known you, what, probably at least 10, 12 years now, because we're both on the fee arbitration committee. At our, uh, he has been a lawyer for over 40 years. Uh, he's a full-time mediator, arbitrator, although I don't know that you've done it very much during that the pandemic. Uh, but he has been the chair of the fee arbitration committee for the state bar uh, for many years now, and so he does bring a great deal of knowledge and experience uh, to this. So we are looking forward to this presentation, and uh, we'll let Steve take it away. Thank you, Charles, um, and good afternoon to everyone. Uh, first, they changed the name of the Fee Arbitration Committee to the Fee Arbitration Program. So last uh, month, we had the Fee Arbitration Program program at the State Bar Convention. Little redundancy there. Uh, in your materials, I, you have the slides, and, and they're somewhat fulsome because I think uh, if you need to, you can always go back and refer to them. Um, I also have about yes, Charles. I'm sorry, but we have had someone join us, and, and every now and then I don't have the ability to turn off your camera, uh, so I am going to ask you to turn off your camera. Okay, Steve, please continue. Okay, uh, we have the, these materials. Um, I've got three or four pages of cases and ethics opinions specifically on fees. Those are attached. Um, the, uh, some rulings on, um, on, excuse me, on attorney's fees. Uh, I'm sorry, apologize. The form for the ruling on attorney's fees that you'll have in court. And probably the most important thing for you today is uh, the certificate of attendance, which uh, after today you can submit to uh, Taj to get credit. Um, next slide, please. Charles, next slide. Or you can follow along at, at your offices. Uh, we're going to review today our attorney's fees basics. Um, things that you know everyone needs to know about attorney's fees. 
we're going to, I put together some excerpts from the manuals, best practices, cases, and some opinions that we'll review. Then the ethics, the attorney ethics that we should consider, and then some judicial considerations and the ruling on, on attorney's fees form. I'm also going to be discussing a, a recent case out of Superior Court where the court uh, actually assessed attorney's fees against the opposing party and their attorney. Next slide, please. So we'll get on to attorney's fees basics. Next slide. Fee agreements in general, and this is, this is, I think, probably one of the most important things. This goes back to the Inouye Schwartz case from um, 1984, 27 years ago. Um, and it addresses some things that um, lawyers sometimes forget. The question is, and the ABA deals with this, is business, is, is lawyering, is being a lawyer, a business or a profession? It's called the business profession dichotomy. And from my perspective, I think if you look at what the Arizona courts do, what our rules say, it's clear that law is a profession. Um, it's not the mere, as they said in Schwartz, the mere money-getting trade. Next slide, please. Uh, the basic ethical obligation is that a lawyer shall not make an agreement for, so that's the agreement they enter into with their client, charge, or importantly that we may get into uh, as judges, collect an unreasonable fee, or, and remember these also apply, an unreasonable amount for expenses. Um, and the rule makes no distinction between whether the fee is something that's paid for by a client or assessed against a third party. Um, I would also suggest that, as we'll, we'll see this as we go through the ethics rules, uh, there's nowhere in these rules, nowhere in any case I've seen, that collectability uh, is an issue. You know, well, I, I charge more here because I don't collect on other cases. Um, I think our courts are clear that each case is considered individually. Uh, each matter is considered individually. Next uh, slide, please. And of course, the underlying uh, direction is fees and expenses must be reasonable. Next slide. Uh, fee agreements must be in writing, and there's a big exception. We'll discuss that in just a moment. Uh, but it should be provided the commencement of the representation or a reasonable time thereafter. It doesn't have to be formal. A letter or, or an email can suffice, but there are certain requirements. Uh, one, you have to explain, the lawyer has to explain to the client what is the scope of the representation. Um, general legal services um, is, not any, is not allowed. You have to be more specific. Uh, the basis of the rate or fee, are you charging by the hour, a flat fee, contingency, which I guess we don't get into much, but what's the basis of the fee? Um, if you're hearing these matters, you should ask to see a copy of the agreement, and generally, and we'll get into this, uh, the China Doll Affidavit, you probably will receive one, the attorneys know to submit those. Um, but, and here's the exception, not agreements, not all agreements have to be signed by the client, but they must be in writing, except with limited exceptions. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, the exceptions to the writing. This comes out of the rule. Except where the lawyer will charge a regularly represented client on the same basis, any changes on the, on the same basis. So they don't need to have a writing then. If you've been representing a, a client 
and these rules, and this is where it gets a little sticky, were enacted in 2012. Prior to that, this rule didn't exist where you, there was a requirement there'd be a writing. Most major law firms that I, I'm aware of did have written agreements. But in 2012, that changed, uh, and the court required there'd be a writing. But they have this language except that says, except where a lawyer will charge or regularly represent clients on the same basis. I think that the reason that was put in was because in 2012, if it wasn't put in, everyone who'd been representing clients 5, 10, 20 years would have to run around and get, get uh, uh, written fee agreements. I think that was to take care of that situation. And I, I say that because looking at comment two to the rule, uh, it says um, the, when lawyer has regularly represented clients, they've evolved an understanding. Um, but then it says, in a new client-lawyer relationship, however, a written understanding as to fees and expenses must be promptly established. Well, if you gotten a, if a lawyer has gotten a client after 2012, they don't know if they're going to have a uh, regularly representation or, or situation. So I would suggest anyone who any lawyer has been representing a client after 2012 should have a written fee agreement. The other factor is if you look at this rule that's up on the screen, um, if there's a change in the basis or rate of the fee, that has to be communicated in writing. Now, there may be a situation that someone's been representing a client since 2012, but then if they've raised their rates or changed their rates, added new attorneys, moved, you know, add, deleted some attorneys and there've been changes in the rates, that would have had to have been in writing since at least 2012. So that also ought to be uh, submitted. Uh, and then I just wanted to complete the rules. So I put in the situations where uh, there need not be a, a relationship. Um, so basically, and I, Charles was a little fast for me and I'm trying to read my, my writing here, but if a lawyer bottom of that slide, um, even if a lawyer represents someone for a long time, there's still, if, if they change the rates, there has to be a writing reflecting that. Next slide now. Thank you, Charles. Um, okay, fee agreements that must be signed by the client. Contingency fee agreements have to be signed by the client. Uh, I'm not sure we run into too many of those, but for those of you who are practicing, uh, in addition to, to being on the bench as pro tems, uh, be aware of that. And we'll talk about a case where a lawyer did not do that and there was significant issues. And fee sharing, a uh, little, again, uh, information for those who are practicing. The uh, court basically pulled out a lot of the provisions for feature, fee sharing uh, that used to exist. And basically now, as long as there's disclosure and writing, um, how the firm's going to divide responsibility, the client consents and the fee is total fee is reasonable and the division of responsibility is reasonable, uh, that's all you need for fee sharing. Uh, previously, there was a little bit more complications. Uh, with that. Uh, so you may want to look at that rule and see how's it, how it's changed. Next slide, please. Okay, full disclosure. The lawyer must disclose uh, how they are going to be billing the client. A simple agreement between the lawyer that I will provide you services for your DUI only means they're going to be providing legal services for the DUI. 
other matters uh, would not be covered by that. Um, also, um, you know, if there, as I said, if there are other charges, the, the lawyer has to write those down. Um, if you're being, uh, if you're billing on the basis of hours worked on a matter, uh, if you bill more than the time you spend, that's going to be considered unethical. Um, and we'll talk about a couple of situations where a lot of attorneys do that, not understanding that they can do it. The example here, if you bill um, 0.5 hours for all telephone calls, no matter the length, that's really not appropriate because that's more time than, than you took. Um, I had one matter, I, I haven't sat, I haven't been sitting that long in justice court. Um, I haven't had too many attorney's fees cases. But one was an eviction matter, and I looked at the bill, and there was a $600 charge on the first line. And then there was a breakout, you know, meeting with clients, $600. And it was a breakout for all the things that were typically done, you know, getting information from the client, writing up the, the documents that had to be done. And that was like $350, as I recall. Um, so I asked the attorney, what's the $600 for? And he said, well, whenever the client walks in, I charge $600. Well, that has no relationship to how much time the the lawyer took with the attorney, plus the fact that $350 was about uh, on a one-off situation is generally what I've seen and what I was trying to, to see um, for simple, relatively simple eviction matters. Um, and so again, you lawyer can only charge for the time he takes, not these flat fees. There was a matter here a number of years ago in Arizona there was a $50 monthly uh, file fee uh, just to hold the file. That was found to be inappropriate. Um, things of that nature you, you should walk out, watch out for. Um, next slide. Block billing and assistance activities. Um, you know, this, this typical half hour increments, even if it's in the fee grant, you know, we bill with half-hour increments. If we do any work for you, if you call us, it's going to be at half-hour. Um, and so, you know, be aware of those types of things. Uh, billing for clerical work, um, you know, that can be billed as long as it's set forth in the agreement. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but you have to allow, the, the lawyer has to allow the person reviewing it, both the client and the court, to know what each task, how long each task takes, um, you know, so it can be reviewed for reasonableness. Um, next slide. And, and, and just to follow up on that, um, you know, we've all done, gotten deposition notices, things of that nature. Billing a client 30 minutes for notifying them, which is usually done by your legal assistant or secretary that they have a deposition coming up or there's a hearing coming up uh, really you know is that reasonable would one think that was reasonable under the rules the ethical rules um, look back and this is very important and, th and this goes to the idea of um, it's, it's somewhat of a distinction between Arizona and some other jurisdictions lawyers are required when they complete the representation or the representation ends, maybe the representation hasn't been completed because they were dismissed by the client, um, they're required to review the services rendered and make a determination if the fees are reasonable. 
that was both uh, in 1984 and then and then raised again in, in Hirschfeld in 1988. Um, and it, it's important because when I went to law school back in the 70s, um, back east, I was told, you know, contingency fee lawyers, um, they, they ring the bell, they can keep it. Um, the idea being, the theory being, well, that will allow them to take less, you know, cases that they may have more difficulty with. Well, I don't know, I've been practicing for a long time, and I think lawyers take cases they, they think they can win and make some money for, uh, both for their clients and themselves. There are some lawyers who, who really do take cases that are difficult, um, and uh, there aren't too many of those. So ringing the bell in Arizona, you know, under our court decisions, um, you have to go back and look at it. Um, someone who's got a severe, uh, you know, tort case, um, difficult situation. Someone severely injured. They call up the they call up the insurance company and say, "We want limits. We want you five million dollar limits." The uh, insurance company says, "Sure. Where do we send the check?" You know, if you spent a few hours, if the lawyer spent a few hours with the client, of course, there's a risk involved. Um, is a third or 20 or 40 percent of five million dollars reasonable under those circumstances? Um, that's you know something the lawyer has to determine. Charles, do you want to say Please. something? Yes. Back to the block billing, we do have a question about uh, attorneys who bill in six-minute increments for every task. I I I saw that and I'm sort of focused. It's not. I'm sorry. I'm glad you said because I'm focusing on the slide. Six minute increment for every task is probably okay. And and I, I was going to get to this later and I may repeat myself. Um, I just had to do a, a fee application, not I reviewed a fee application as a, as a uh, an arbitrator. And um, it, it was interesting. There's always some fluff. I know lawyers who, when they put in fee applications, they automatically tell the court, we're taking 10% off because there's fluff in there. Uh, you have a two minute conversation. Uh, you put in a tenth of a, a, a tenth of an hour. Um, sometimes, you know, my theory was, and I used to say, I say this when I do the uh, fee arbitration program at the bar, if it's that short a call, put it down on your records uh, because you want to have a record of every interaction and everything you've done for your client, but no bill it. You know, it's only a couple of minutes and clients love no bills. Uh, but six minutes is, is okay, but this one firm, um, they they told me they round down. I'd never heard of that. Um, maybe they do that instead of dealing with the 10% off. But um, billing in six minute increments is fine. But it, you say the question says for every task, um, that could be problematic. Um, I would notice, and I'm not suggesting people keep time the way I used to take time, but I'd look at a, a deposition came, notice came in. Uh, for not my, not necessarily my client, I give my secretary and say, you know, send them this standard letter, letting them know it's there. If they want to talk to me, have them call me. Um, and make a note, you know, that I that I've had that conversation with the client, with the secretary, but not I wouldn't bill for it. Um, but generally, in general, six-minute increments are probably appropriate. Um, look back. Uh, this is the most important, as I said, um, and just. Um, you know, review, you as the judge are basically doing the look back for what the attorney should have done. Uh, next line. Next, I'm sorry, next slide. 
Um, okay, hourly rate on the look back. Um, the lawyer is supposed to keep detailed, presumably contemporaneous records uh, of what they're doing. We'll see there are hourly cases, there are flat fee cases, even contingency fee cases where the court is saying you have to keep detailed and presumably contemporaneous records. Um, they should provide the, the hourly billing rate so the court can see is that billing rate appropriate. I had a conversation with a judge the other day the lawyer wanted to charge $400 because they had been practicing for so long for things that, you know, basically is $250 to $300 under the uh, uh, economics of law practice publication by the state bar. The survey shows that's what's being billed. The fact that a lawyer has been practicing for a lot of time doesn't justify a greater amount. Um, question, I'll get to it in just a moment. The, uh, the, uh, Information should include identifying the legal services performed and the expenses incurred. Precisely, you know what the client has has a right to know, and our courts demand the client knows what's going on, uh, who's billing the services, uh, and when the services were provided. Um, and and uh, sometimes a lawyer may say that you know this confidential privileged information is billing. Uh, reports, his invoices, but they can redact that. I, people, I'm sure the attorneys have seen uh, bill uh, fee applications that are redacted. It's no problem with it. I have a question. Does questioning an attorney's bill create mistrust and tension between client and lawyer? Mm, I'm, I'm say, you know, the fee arbitration program has a lot of fee arbitrations. Um, there is, and I, I'm trying to recall, but basically, if there's a dispute between the client and the attorney, and I don't, I haven't looked at this in a while, but basically, you've got a uh, situation where generally, the, particularly if you go to fee arbitration, I'm not suggesting a conversation with your client because they call you up and say, I have a question with my, my bill. Um, but if it gets to fee arbitration, generally, the uh, common sense situation is the attorney has to withdraw from the representation because this is direct conflict with the clients. Um, but having you know a client question a bill um, is not that unusual. It, it also, if you, if you can't explain, it's, it's sort of what the, uh, the Mike Wallace uh, theory of, of, of law, if you can't explain it to uh, Mike Wallace chasing after you with a microphone, those of you who are young, he used to run 60 minutes, then you know maybe you ought to question what you're doing. So, you know, be cautious about that. Um, and is it better to have your client who sits there and stews over your bills than not, you know, have a chance to at least air out and see what the problem is? And I think at some level, it probably allows the attorney to figure out, uh, uh, is there going to be an issue with this client and, and uh, how to proceed with that client? Uh, next, next slide, please. Okay, flat fees. Um, flat fees, like any other fee, is subject to a retrospective analysis to determine whether the fees are reasonable. Um, and two, two authorities there, 2002's case and uh, the ethics opinion from 94. Um, again, pointing out what I just said, we've had already an hourly rate, contemporaneous fee uh, records, um, flat fees, contemporaneous records. Um, you know, to, to see what's going on. Um, it's also from 
an accounting standpoint, an attorney may want to keep, should keep records to figure out, how, you know, what are they really charging for the tasks they're performing? If they're, you know, they think $5,000 for a DUI defense is reasonable, well, how much time does it take to do it? Are you, are you keeping records of your time so you can find out, are you charging $50 an hour? Or are you charging $500 an hour? Um, so just for the attorneys themselves, they ought to know. Um, uh, next, next slide. The other thing is, um, if there's early termination, and this is from comment seven in the ethical rules, it's advisable for lawyers to maintain contemporaneous time records so they know how much, if any, has to be refunded. I'm, I'm gonna have something to say about that. Um, flat fees, I've sort of noticed they came out, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but I didn't see too many of them early in my practice. And I see, you know, flat fees earned upon receipt. So I don't know if that was intended to not have to deal with trust accounts. But flat fees under the ethical rules and in the uh, in, in the comments are, are dealt the same way with that language that says um, there's a flat fee, but you may terminate the representation at any time. And if so, you may be entitled to a refund, which always in the back of my mind is, is sort of a concern because it says you may be entitled to a refund. It seems if an attorney says to a client, I will take this matter through a DUI trial. And then they end the relationship prior and they charge whatever the fee is, flat fee. They end the relationship before the DUI trial. It seems common sense that there has to be somewhat of a refund because they didn't, the lawyer didn't complete what they agreed to do for $5,000. So that, that's a question I've seen my fee arbitrators um, wrestle with. Um, and there, probably this time there's no good answer because that language about may be entitled to a, uh, a refund. Um, so let's go on to the next uh, next slide. Okay, contingent fees, and this is what I said earlier. Uh, even contingent fees, where you think a lawyer just decide, you know, if they win, they get their percentage. If they don't win, they don't get anything. But in what supplies, Geller we'll talk about later, um, even if you've agreed to a contingency fee, um, if, you, if you're claiming more than the usual hourly rate for the, for the representation you're providing, again, the uh, uh, economics of law practice is a good resource, other attorneys are good resources for attorneys who are practicing, um, you have to justify your fee. Um, and the mere fact that the uh, risk is involved in the contingency arrangement is not sufficient to justify I, the, the example I gave earlier, the $5 million. Um, this probably is not gonna come up in justice court, but I think it's helpful for general knowledge. Next line. Next, I keep saying dot in line, next, uh, next slide. This is the case that I mentioned earlier, a contingent fee where there was no written agreement signed by the client. 2018 case, not that long ago. The court didn't even allow quantum merit recovery. If it's not by, signed by the client, the lawyer gets zero. So for those who are practicing out there, make sure you get, to, if you do contingency fee work, make sure the client signs it. 
I'm not aware and I haven't seen any, and I have discussions not as much as I used to with the, with the ethics council of the bar, um, because COVID sometimes I would see her more frequently, but I've never been told about any case law. I'm not aware of any case where law where in a non-contingency fee case, like an hourly hybrid or fee sharing case, uh, flat fee case, uh, where there's no writing at all. One of those earlier slides we talked about where the attorney and the client have to have a written agreement where they've awarded the, the court reviewing that has awarded no fees. Uh, I am aware of a fee arbitration case that did refuse the award of hourly bill fees where there was no writing. There was no agreement written between the client and the, uh, uh, and the lawyer. Uh, but there were other factors and they've mitigated against any award. Uh, so I'm not sure that would be a good basis. And it's a, it was a fee arbitration case and has no uh, authority. Next, next uh, slide. Okay, there's the uh, full uh, um, yellers again cited later. Um, can, when you're dealing with contingent fees, again, the court's saying contemporaneous logs. Um, but they're not, in, in Newman's an interesting case. We're going to talk about that in the next slide. But the, you see the court saying that they're not required in all circumstances. The court could award attorney's fees based on partially reconstructed time records, so long as the fees requested are reasonably supported. And they cite a 2012 case. Let's go to the next slide. This is the. Um, And here, the court found that the lawyer, the attorney did not consistently complete contemporaneous descriptions. And what he had done was recreated some of the time entries based on recollections and references to various sources. And they found, the court found that these records were as a whole reasonably, uh, as a whole reasonably contemporaneous or were not, I apologize, were not as a whole reasonably contemporaneous or trustworthy. That was a case that was a, uh, a second ago. Um, it, it had to do with um, a senior abuse case. Um, and the attorney under their hourly rate was entitled, under the contingency rate was entitled to $112,000. But they sought under the time they took $388,000. That's 20%, 30% of the time they say was actually spent. Um, and the court said, no, you didn't keep adequate records. Um, I've seen a number of, uh, I'm aware of a number of cases, arbitration cases where the attorney will say, well, that's how long it usually takes for us to do that. In the back of my mind, if the attorney doesn't take, keep records of the time it takes, how do they know that that's the time it usually takes to do the task that they don't keep time for? Uh, they don't keep contemporaneous records. So. Oh, here it is. Yeah, it was an adult probation uh, case statute, statutory attorney's fees. And there the court just knocked it way down. Next slide, please. Okay. In civil fee disputes, uh, I'm sure attorneys, all, you who are practicing know you can have contingent fees uh, in a divorce, but if they're merely protecting, uh, collecting a post-judgment balance that's due, that's just a collection case. And, and those are, don't have to be, uh, those could be contingent fees. And of course, representing a defendant in a criminal case can't be a contingent fee case. 
Next slide, please. And now we're going to review the manuals, some of our manuals, best practices, and cases and opinions. And I and I cite uh, to the items that we're talking about uh, on the uh, on the heading of each slide. One thing you should know: the court trial court has broad discretion in both attorneys' fees um, and the amount of the award, absent of an abuse of discretion. There's no presumption presumption in the favor of an award of attorney's fees. Um, that's just the way our courts have decided. Next slide. Okay, under 341.01, contract actions, attorney's fees are to mitigate the burden of the expense of litigation to establish the claim or just claim or just defense. But it can't exceed the amount paid or agreed to be paid. Uh, that's generally the rule, um, different from what that uh, attorney in the, in the Newman case attempted to do. Uh, but there may be situations uh, not prioritizing a justice court where you could shift to a lodestar. Courts sometimes allow lodestar cases, which um, those are generally civil rights type cases, ERISA type cases. Next, next slide, please. When looking at whether attorney's fees should be awarded in contract, disputed contract cases, the, you look at the merits of the claim or defense by the unsuccessful party, um, whether litigation could have been avoided, uh, whether assessing attorney's fees against the unsuccessful party would cause an extreme hardship. Um, and you just, just to be aware, simply because you're unsuccessful, that in and of itself may not necessarily be justification um, to award fees if it would cause severe hardship, um, which is an interesting concept. We, we do have some cases where um, people are in supported housing. Um, I'm aware of one case where the lease ended <clears throat> And I think the person wasn't paying more than 20 or $50 a month. Um, and the tenant refused to uh, leave the premises. Um, the landlord had to go out and get an attorney. And the tenant said, because of the nature of the lease, the nature of the relationship of the agency who was funding uh, the remainder of the rent, he was entitled to a larger period of time of notice. Notwithstanding, it was a lease just ended just by its terms. And the claim was that he was told that and the documents reflected that he was entitled to this greater period of notice. I, think, I can't remember if it was 60 or 90 days. Um, there was, I believe, at least the 30 days given. Um, and he, the uh, tenant uh, provided uh, documentation that on reading did not appear to uh, support his claim, um, but he said that he could bring in a representative from the agency who would testify, governmental agency who would testify that in fact he was entitled to this additional 30 or 60 days. Matter was continued for a couple of days. The client, the, the landlord had to go out and get an attorney Attorney did what they had to do to get up to speed, came in, 
and the testimony from the agency representatives, whether it was state or federal agency representative, was asked, is this is a tenant under the terms of lease and under the regulations entitled to this um, extra 30 or 60 days? And the representative said, no, they're just entitled to whatever's in the lease or whatever's otherwise available in, under law. Then, you know, as, as you know, the judge has to decide, and there was an application for attorney's fees. Then it was appropriately structured within the lease, things of that nature. All the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. And the tenant uh, did not want to have to pay a bond in excess of the two or three months worth of time he spent over related to what his payment of the rent was, the 10, 20, 30, or $40 per month. Um, in that case, there could be hardship on the uh, unsuccessful party, but there was also hardship on the landlord. And you have to sort of struggle with what you do in a case like that as to what can be done on assessing attorney's fees. Because if you don't assess attorney's fees and the that amount of money is is uh, is, is bonded, the uh, the tenant doesn't have to leave the property until the appeal is completed, which there was an appeal. Um, so those sometimes it doesn't happen often, uh, but you, know, you may have to struggle with how you deal with uh, extreme hardship situations. Next uh, next slide. Okay, um, other guideline, uh, would it deter other litigants from pursuing valid claims? Um, whether the successful party prevailed with respect to all other relief sought? And then finally, the novelty of the legal question presented and whether the claims was pre or defense had previously been adjudicated in the jurisdiction. Um, we're gonna be reviewing a case uh, from a couple of months ago, as I said, um, where the court did award fees and some of these issues came up. Um, next slide, next, uh, slide best practices. Uh, default actions, and we know we get a lot of those. Um, hey, what are the things we look at? First, make sure the complaint or counterclaim requests the attorney's fees. Um, and even the default actions, you have to analyze these situations, these, these cases. Determine if attorney's fees are allowed by law. Breach of contract, you know, you enforce it per the contract. Um, if there is a contract claim under a contract, uh, the plaintiff must submit or the, the winning party must submit the applicable portion of the contract. Uh, next, next slide. All right. You have to, the lawyer has to file for attorney's fees when requesting entry of default. Um, but remember, default case, the 341.01 only applies to contested cases. And then, of course, you need the uh, China, China doll affidavit. Um, next slide. <clears throat> the China doll affidavit. Again, detailed billing statements. So basically what the attorney provides to their client. Um, again, with perhaps redacted privileged or confidential information. The hourly billing rate, the legal services performed, who performed them, 
and the services were provided. The burden is on the council to establish the time that was spent, the time expended was reasonable and necessary, and the billing rate was reasonable. Um, next slide. Okay, flat fees. This is I, Charles, I hope I don't get into trouble for this. Um, in many cases, and this came out of the best practices, which is why I quoted it, um, where there's no China doll affidavit's been filed, $500 could be considered a reasonable request for flat, for flat attorney's fees in connection with a default judgment. I would suggest you should carefully look at the fee agreement and consider in that case if $500 is reasonable under the circumstances. And why I say that is the 2019 edition of the Economics of Law Practice uh, brochure published by the bar puts the median rate for collection attorneys at $279 an hour. The 25th percentile is $262, the 75th, $312. So the question you have to ask yourself, looking at the pleadings, I would say, is how long did it take to complete the legal work to get the papers together, do whatever relationship is work with the client is necessary? You know, is this a one-off? Is this is, you know, these firms file these for this client all the time and determine how much time it really took in attorney's fees that are three about $300 an hour to do the work and how much was done by a paralegal or was done by a, um, a, a secretary filling in the blanks. Um, I don't know. I'm not a collection attorney. I don't know. And I don't see enough cases. But considering, you know, the, the base point is $300 for the attorney's hours work, consider, you know, what whether 500 is appropriate in the particular case. It may well be, and this is where no China at all affidavits been submitted. So I, I would just suggest that those might be reviewed carefully. Next slide. Reducing fees on based on an hourly rate that must be documented on the form and or a minute entry. And we'll see later, there's a form for that. We'll be addressing it's in your materials. Um, and as we all know, I know I wasn't on the bench too long, but McDowell Mountain came up almost immediately. Um, that, that case um, does not hold, although it appears to from some, the collection council, this is from best practices, so the, the courts consider this, does not hold the collection council for HOAs be automatically awarded 100% of the requested attorney's fees. Next slide. Uh, Yes, it's true that when parties uh, contract for attorney's fees and costs, the non-prevailing party has the burden of proving that fees and costs were unreasonably excessive. But McDowell Mountain does not limit the trial court's authority to consider the reasonableness of fees in absence of an opposition. This is a 2019 case, uh, Tucson uh, States Property Association. Uh, next, next, next slide. So we know it's at the court's discretion. Um, and so we look at uh, where the court's discretion to evaluate the reasonableness of requested attorney's fees. And I would submit that McDowell Mountain Ranch was decided the way it was decided because the judge did not explain the reason for the decision of reducing the fees. 
and I think that Charles may correct can correct me if I'm wrong. You think that may have been the genesis of the form that is in your materials. Uh, so there is a simple way for the uh, judge to handle that. Next, next uh, slide, please. Uh, Geller versus Lex. Uh, you know, if uh, the court's just not going to enforce an unreasonable fee, um, and Yes, the party seeking the fees must make a primus showing, prima facie showing of reasonableness. Then the burden shifts to show the fees requests are excessive. And from the uh, best practices, that if, if someone doesn't show up on a default case, or maybe they do, yes, there is a burden shifting there. And yes, they have to show their the fees requests are excessive, but the court independently uh, can look at that. Uh, next slide. And with dealing with contingency fee agreements, which Gallup versus Les was, um, again, we're talking here, we're the contemporaneous law, it's not an offhanded approximation of hours worked. Uh, and as I said earlier, generally, you know, we can't assess fees greater than what the party's agreement was, but in certain cases, the lodestar approach is, is authorized. In Geller versus Lex, Lex uh, I think the estimated fee was somewhere over $1,750. Actually, 99 cents over that. But, um, you know, so you know, be, be aware of that, this option that's available to uh, judges to look at these. Uh, next slide, please. So where do you get this? I'm sorry, I missed this one. Yeah, hybrid fees. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with hybrid fees. I start seeing those sort of late in my practice, I never used them because I just build my clients hourly and didn't do too much plaintiff's work. But um, if those are situations where someone says, okay, my standard rate is $350 an hour, or I generally get a contingency of 40%, they say, well, you pay me $150 an hour, plus uh, if we're successful, 250, 20% uh, or 25% of, of the uh, recovery. Um, and what this ethics opinion says um, that you can have those uh, if the resulting fee is reasonable. And again, I'm stressing this, you go back, the court's always saying, you look at the end result and are the fees reasonable no matter the type of fee structure that's being involved, that's involved. Next, next slide, please. Okay, court awarded fees, this is just to just throw this case out for you so you're aware of this. An attorney can't get with the court, and this probably don't run into with the court, we're just going to be awarding or not awarding fees to a certain amount, but the, the, the attorney can't go to the client and says, okay, I get a third plus the court awarded X number of dollars in attorney's fees, I get those two. You can't do that. Next slide. Okay, again, you know, where do you get this information? This is a bankruptcy appeals panel decision from the Ninth Circuit, but Courts can rely upon their own knowledge of what are reasonable and proper fees in determining the reasonable fees. You don't need expert testimony. Um, I'm going to, at the end of this, Charles, I'll, I'll sort of warn you ahead. I'm going to discuss with, because I'm, so I tell people I'm semi retired with the emphasis on retired. So I'm generally available if someone has questions. And I usually answer them um, as the fee arbitration program chair. But I think when we're dealing with judges, there's a different, there are, I know there are different rules involved 
And so, although I'd be happy to talk to you, I'm, I'm not sure I can, uh, because of the ethical rules of contacting someone uh, who's not a fellow judge. Um, next next slide. Okay, there are some inevitable conclusions that I sort of have come up with. The Arizona courts require attorney's fees and costs to be reasonable, no matter the type of fee utilized uh, under any circumstances. Um, they're all subject to a look-back analysis to determine if the fees are reasonable. Uh, next slide. And the court has discretion to review attorney's fees and costs, even in default matters where there is no opposition. Uh, and I believe you should be cautious of records where services are not contemporaneous, um, where there's no record of those. Next, next slide. Okay, expenses other than their attorney's fees, sort of shifting over. There's this case from 1985 that says, absent express agreement to pay secretarial services, an attorney may not charge separately for those services. That's been deemed to apply to anything that is not the provision of legal services. It's, there's a fee agreement between an attorney and a client that says, I will represent you in your DUI through to, through to trial at the you know, uh, Maryvale Justice Court for $5,000. It's only the attorney they can charge for that. It's not their secretary. It's not for messenger services. It's not for paralegal. And even if a, if a um, agreement says that I will charge for messenger services, para, my paralegal, secretary, you know, other people, um, those expenses have to be reasonable. I, I'm aware of one case, um, I'm sort of smiling, the attorney charged, and I may be wrong on this, it was either $300 to $600 to deliver a document from downtown Phoenix to a state entity, a state agency that happened to be in Scottsdale. The reason being, um, it was a very important document. If it wasn't filed on time, the client would have lost certain rights, perhaps all their rights. So the attorney wanted to make sure it was delivered on time. So the attorney took it to the agency, but charged his regular hourly rate. And in that case, the fee arbitrator did not find that appropriate. It wasn't reasonable under the circumstances. Um, and you know, so you have to look at what the services, you know, the messenger services can't be a uh, sort of a profit uh, uh, area for the for the firm. Uh, you cannot charge five dollars a copy for copying charges. Uh, they have to be reasonable. Um, I'm not sure anyone gets billed. Anyone anyone who has a cell phone actually pays for long distance calls anymore. Um, you know, so are you charging for long distance calls? Uh, electronic legal research is always a problem because of the way those are billed uh, by uh, Lexis and, and Westlaw. Um, you know, so you have to be cautious of those. Uh, next slide. Next slide. Um, the surcharge, I don't know if many of you have come across this, it's, it's, it's come up uh, infrequently in my practice. Um, instead of going through each item and charging them, copying charges that are reasonable, messenger charges, things of that nature that are within the firm, not outside uh, third-party expenses, um, the, the rules allow 
an attorney to charge a surcharge, you know, 0.1% of the hourly of the billings of any particular month goes to these other costs, and so you don't have to break them out. But they have to relate to approximate actual costs. I'm aware of one case where um, a couple of um, younger attorneys, I will say, uh, left a medium-sized Phoenix firm, uh, opened their own shop. They had uh, the arbitration, um, and they had they used a percentage. So. I asked, uh, how did you come up with your percentage? You know, did they go through their expenses over a period of a year or six months or something and come up with some number? And they said, well, we that was the number that we was used at the firm we left. So we just took that one. Doesn't work that way. It has to relate to the approximate actual costs that are in the firm. So just be aware of that if you've come up with it. That was the only time in even reading, and I read all the fee arbitration cases. Um, every year, and I've been doing since I've been on the, the program, the prior committee that goes back uh, what, 15 or so more years. Um, and that was the only time I ever run into it. But those of you who practice, be aware that it has to relate to what the firm's actual costs uh, relate to. Next slide. Not These are things that are not, I would say, not reasonable billing. Um, Billing time, travel time to one client and billing another client for work performed during the travel. Um, I don't know, you know, if, if lawyers bill for travel within Maricopa County. Um, I expressly stated in my bills, I, I my fee agreements, I did not bill for that travel. If it was out of county, I, I billed 50%. Um, but if with cell phones now, um, if you're driving, to, if, if a lawyer is driving to an eviction uh, calendar, talking to another uh, client and they bill for travel, they really can't bill for the time it took them to travel if they're also billing their client they were speaking to on the phone for, for a separate billing. Um, billing clients, uh, two clients for the same work. Um, you can't do that. If uh, this goes back to maybe advice work where clients uh, want you to write an opinion paper and you write it takes five hours you another client asks you for something very similar to perhaps the same state agency and just changing a few things you write another opinion letter you can't charge five hours you can charge the time it took you to write that new uh, opinion but not the time not if it took you less than five hours um, billing a number of clients for time spent creating a form um, and for that same amount of time after the form has been created. Um, I've noticed a lot of the things that come in, pleadings that come in are pretty standardized. Uh, when I gave this talk, I don't know, it was like five or six years ago, the first time, someone who I've never seen again uh, came up and, and asked whether, you know, they thought that it was completely proper if it took uh, three hours to prepare a uh, eviction complaint. Uh, and you have a, a checklist of would your paralegal or, or would your secretary ask to ask people and just fill in the blanks in that complaint, why can't you charge three hours the second time, even though it may have only taken the attorney 15 or 20 minutes to review it and the paralegal half an hour or so after consultation with the client, maybe another 15 minutes uh, to talk to the client to get the facts. Uh, why can't you continue to charge the three hours? because that was not the time it took you to prepare that form. Besides, 
you know, fees being reasonable besides the requirement to look back. I think our our courts say you can only bill, and, and this goes to why you can't ring the bell for the benefit of future clients that may not have as good a case uh, on contingency cases, is each client has to be considered separately. So each case that comes before you where there's attorney's fees and issues have to con be considered within that particular case, not with regard to other matters. At least that's how I read what, what the courts have done in, in Arizona. Next slide. If you're really interested, and this is my my golfer slide, I have to say that. It's like the golfer who got a hole in one, they run around and tell everyone. I have not been able to get on to Wendell at all. Before COVID, I was talking to the people at IT. We tried differently, couldn't get on. Two weeks ago, I got on Wendell. It's amazing stuff there. So two of the things are the Arizona Attorney's Fees Manual and the, attorney, the Attorney's Fees Desk Reference. And I thought I would show up because now I finally got on Wendell. So they're there. Um, and for those of you who are already on Wendell, are probably thinking, that idiot couldn't get on Wendell. Well, I, I had a change. I, I use a completely different um, uh, search engine for it. it. It's really confusing, different email address, but I got on. But these are additional information, and particularly those who are practicing, you may want to look at these because they're, they're quite good. Next uh, slide, please. Okay, ethical, ethical factors to consider. Next slide. This is basically uh, rule you know, 1.5. Um, this is what lawyers are responsible for, you know, they're, they're relying upon, um, that gives them direction. You as, as judges look at these uh, considerations, you'll see in the form, those, these are generally covered, uh, but these factors aren't limiting factors. If there's something unique about the case or different about the case, that's also a consideration. And we're going to go through each of those uh, right now. Next slide. Um, okay, time and labor required, novelty and difficulty and skill required. You know, I, I, I've sat through, um, you know, I've been trained with, with a couple of judges who have been nice enough to let me come in and watch them. And generally what I see, and even a couple of pro tems I've watched, particularly eviction cases, before they go out on the bench, you're flipping through the files, making sure everything's in there. Then you go out and you meet with the lawyer or telephonically, and the judge will point something out. Well, this isn't in there. Where is that? And the attorney's looking through it. They say, "Oh, it's not there." Well, the attorney, you know, did did they look at the file before they sat down to bring these you know, ten or twenty cases before the court? Um, did it really take the time um, that? would be expected where we're billing the lieutenant $150. Um, did they really spend $150 worth of time? And again, uh, lawyer time, secretarial time, uh, uh, legal assistance or paralegal time in getting that done. Um, so that's a consideration. Uh, likelihood the representation will preclude uh, other employment. Um, that's generally, uh, it's difficult to determine, uh, but we'll get into another factor about how quickly the lawyer must act. And that may that could be a factor to consider, particularly on a one-off one, one eviction uh, where the attorney has to get up to snuff in uh, three to five days uh, for the hearing. 
next next slide. The customer, the fee customer only charged. Um, this is just my what I've seen. Um, I've seen it as low as 80. I've seen up to 125. And uh, after thinking about this, because I haven't seen because of COVID, um, I think I recall there's some up around 150. But that goes to how long does it really take them to do these, the lawyers to do these when they're coming in, going through 10 or 15 or 20 cases in 25 minutes or less than an hour. Uh, do the multiplication. Um, I think one-offs, three hundred dollars. It's you know that sounds a little typical. That you know, particularly uh, getting the pleadings done, things of that nature. HOA and contract cases. Look at their time and the rate. Um, what's the hourly rate? Two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars an hour. I would think seems to be the norm. Uh, flat fee defaults. You know, as I said in the best practices, you know, it's five hundred dollars is probably about right. But look at the particular case. Uh, consider the time taken, reasonable hour, re-rate, all the things for, that we're addressing today. Uh, the amount involved and the results obtained. Uh, you know, minor matters likely not going to justify a high fee if the amount in dispute is small. Why was the case taken? Were there other alternatives? Was there mediation? Was there any discussion? Uh, you know, I hate to, I haven't seen this, but someone walks in and says, oh, I, if they called me up and asked me, I would have paid the money right away. Next next slide. Uh, time limitations. Um, you know, are there time pressures? Do they have to put aside other work? There may be adjustments for that. You know, did they find out on Friday they've got a hearing on Tuesday or Wednesday? They have to work over the weekend. Now, there's a consideration there. Was it something, in, and I'm just going to go back to something like evictions, you know, if the landlord comes in as a pro per and it's a complicated matter, was it the fault of the landlord or was it the fault of the person being evicted that it was more complicated and an attorney was needed? Um, that's a factor that's, that could be considered. Um, the nature and length of the lawyer-client relationship. This may go to the risk by the lawyer. Um, it's probably in the cases we see in justice court, not that big a consideration. And some of these factors are neutral. They don't go either way. Uh, next slide. The lawyer's experience, reputation, ability. If a lawyer's in a, experience in a particular area, they don't get to charge a higher fee just because they've been around a long time. My golf analogy. I don't play golf anymore, but I probably played for 40, 50 years. I didn't get any better. I can't go to the, the US Open and say, hey, I've been playing 50 years. You ought to let me play. Just give me a 70. You know, just call it a 70. The reason that you get a higher fee is because the lawyers considered more efficient. Um, and, and they're doing work that justifies the reasonable fee that they're charging. The example I give. An LLM tax attorney, they may charge a thousand dollars an hour. ERISA attorneys, they you know, no one can understand that law. They may be charging two thousand dollars an hour, but if they're doing a simple eviction, their standard rate of two thousand to one thousand dollars an hour is probably not going to be reasonable. I would suggest. Uh, next, next slide, please. The risk assumed by the lawyer and the nature of the fee agreement. Um, that's generally not a factor in justice court. Um, 
it goes back to what I said earlier. They, you know, I guess, well, I'm, I've got these 20 evictions, but I know, you know my client's only going to be able to collect on half of them, so we charge twice as much for each. You know, that's not uh, a, that's not a, that's not reasonable. Uh, where the courts, in my opinion, uh, say we treat each case separately. Um, next, next slide. And, and also just to be sure, it makes no difference if it's going to be uh, the client's obligation to pay or the uh, opposition uh, obligation to pay. I want to put up some um, just ethical rules that exist out there for the, for the, for the uh, attorneys who I, I know are all aware of these, but just to you know highlight them. Uh, candor towards the tribunal. Candor doesn't mean truth. It means the whole truth, nothing but the truth everything surrounding the truth um, and that's the title so you know it's broader than just you know trying to work your way through uh wordsmithing what you're saying or what you're writing as a lawyer um, lawyers can't make a false statement of fact if they make a representation to the court um that's true you can take it to the bank unless there's some other information that indicates that's not accurate um i've had um in my practice over the years in situations where, and I pretend in Superior Court for, for a while, um, someone saying, well, the lawyer is lying. And I just explain, well, if the lawyer lies, they, they really could lose their ability to be employed. Um, so I have to consider, you know, they have this obligation to tell the truth, be candid, candid towards me. Um, so do you have any evidence that indicates that what they're telling me is not accurate? Because some people, you know, equate lying with not having all the facts. Uh, so that, that's sometimes a problem you might see as a judge. Um, but, you know, I think I, I've never had a problem with a Arizona lawyer misrepresenting a fact to me. And I, I've done some arbitrations with attorneys from around the country and when I practice back in Washington and New York, Washington DC and New York, occasionally attorneys from other jurisdictions um, were questionable, but I have never had a problem with an Arizona attorney not being up front. Um, whether the attorney on the other side or uh, as an arbitrator or any other uh, type of similar situation. Uh, next slide. <clears throat> Lawyer is a witness. Um, you may get a um, someone who reads all about the law and who says oh the lawyer can't give you an affidavit they're testifying well we all know lawyers can there's an exception uh where the lawyer can put in information about the value of their legal services in the case so you shouldn't have to worry about that next slide truthfulness and statements to others you know people will tell you well the lawyer said this the other thing the lawyer may disagree but um you know I, someone says how do i know the lawyers you know, telling me the truth. Well, they've got this ethical responsibility. They can't, they can't lie to you um, or make a false statement of material fact. Uh, so again, you know, there's some reliance there. Next slide. Misconduct is just sort of the catch-all 8.4. You lawyers can't violate the rules of professional conduct, uh, do anything where their honesty or trustworthiness um, or fitness to practice is in question or engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. We know recently a very public lawyer has apparently run, a, run afoul of these rules because they've been uh, barred in, I believe, at least two jurisdictions. So 
um, there is a penalty for that. Next slide. And now we're, we're going to get down to judicial considerations and the ruling on attorney's fees form. My thoughts on what to consider, what to review and consider. The fee agreement, the invoices, the hourly rate, the time spent, and the nature of the work. Do they look reasonable and do they look accurate? The time spent can be accurate, but is it reasonable? Does you know, the line, you know, notifying client of deposition or notifying client of eviction by hearing date, you know, two and a half hours, does that look reasonable? Um, and the hourly rate could be the attorney's regular rate, but is it reasonable for the type of law that they're practicing in the court? Next slide. Okay, additional considerations. Was the flat fee charged for the initial meeting? I mentioned that matter earlier. Um, if it's a flat fee, does did someone look back at the result and see if it's a reasonable hourly rate? Uh, was there a record of work conte created contemporaneously? Um, and are the fees reasonable and accurate as related to the nature of the work performed? Um, a couple other things that I thought of. Um, did one party cause the matter to exceed what would be reasonable? Um, you know, did, were they um, were playing games and discovery? Um, and if they were playing games, that they know that they were playing games. Um, you know, did someone you know forget to bring forward a, an important document? Um, does you know? And we all know attorneys, uh, clients have a right to choose who's going to represent them. But if someone who has a case in Country Meadows hires an attorney whose office is in East Mesa and it takes an hour and a half like two hours for travel time and the attorney bills for travel time is is that reasonable um is you know does does the time spent by the attorney on the client with the client seem to be excessive and maybe the explanation is why i've never dealt with this client before and i don't do a lot of hand holding that may be good that may be fine and may be accurate and truthful but is that a reasonable fee uh, application uh, and attorneys should review their fee applications before they submit it. Uh, so what get what comes to you? You know, if they're going to delete uh, ten percent just because of fluff, if they're going to delete items, you know, they could they could share they could look like good guys and you know show that um, we've deleted this because it was excessive, reduced down to a certain amount, or something like that. Um, but you know, look at those types of things. Okay, um, you've looked at it. Then what do you do? Next slide. You got to determine whether the fees requested should be awarded. What is next? Next slide. And there's a form for that, ruling on attorney's fees form. 2019, it was updated. And Charles, you did that, right? You do all the forms and the checklists and the evictions. And I was thinking, we ought not to call them forms. We ought to call them, there's a Charles for that. Since you do so no, many. Judge, Judge Gerald Williams did the original form. I was responsible in 2019 from changing uh, motion for summary judgment to dispositive motion. And, and you also do, you've done all those eviction forms and the checklists, you work Correct. on those? Yeah, I'll just call them there. That's a Charles. Okay, next, next uh, slide. What I've done is I've broken up the actual form into two slides, so we'll just look at it. It's it's really you know Judge Williams and, and uh, 
he did a really good job. Broke it right up. He goes his mind to the date, the amount of time spent. It is or is not reasonable. First issue, you know, is the time reasonable? Was it a novel, difficult issue case? Um, what are they customary uh, for the fees charge? Customary for the type of case? Um, or do they appropriate given the attorney's experience, reputation, and ability? And I've seen attorneys who have been attorneys two or three years seeking very high hourly rates. Now, it may well be in, in superior court that just or federal court that justifiable because the person was a CPA for 20 years and it's a tax matter. But generally, uh, you know, you, you know, is is the rate requested reasonable given the specific attorney? Um, what are what types of fees are awarded in similar cases? Um, uh, I'm sure our judges and, and anyone who's been on the benches of Pro Tem for many years knows what they've seen before. Um, and I'm sure you, know, you can check with with the judge who may have been your sponsor or other judges. Uh, I've seen a lot of cooperation by all the judges on the bench. Um, did it result in a default judgment? We discussed that. Um, was the case resolved by a dispositive motion? Next slide. Um, was there extensive discovery and was, you know, we have disclosure, uh, was, the co was there cooperation? Did someone call up and say, I'd like to get these documents and the other side said no and then paperwork had to be taken care of? Or did someone say, here, here's everything I've got? Um, the court, you know, the case, you, they had to come to court a number of times. And the, these other four uh, bullet points, um, what, what was the amount involved, time limitations, nature of the relationship, and the degree of risk. And you can include the, the space I left for additional findings is smaller than what's on the form, but you have, you know, and I would suggest if there's some uh, aspects you think ought to be included, include them. So I'm sure the, I think that would be appreciated by uh, the appellate court. Um, I want to discuss a case that came down, next slide, which um, I think uh, sort of provides a roadmap. This was a case out of Superior Court, just uh, middle of March, 2021. Um, and sort of gives you a roadmap of some of the things to look at if you were going to deny attorney's fees and you, and you wanted to write a, a significant ruling. Uh, here, the plaintiff, the Arizona Republican Party, sought a hand count of votes by precinct as opposed by voting centers, which overlap the precincts and the preliminary injunction to enjoin the board of supervisors from certifying the election results and issuing the official canvas, which they did. The case was dismissed with prejudice and the Secretary of State was allowed to uh, uh, seek attorney's fees. What the court found was, what the law, was that the lawsuit was without substantial justification and was groundless and lacking good faith. And we'll see why those terms are important. And not only did the court assess attorney's fees against the plaintiff, but it also addressed them, assessed them against the attorneys jointly and severally pursuant to 12.349. Next slide. Okay, what does 12.349 say? It requires the court of record to assess attorney's fees where a party or brings or defends a claim without substantial justification. That's the key word substantial justification or solely or primarily for delay or harassment. 
substantial justification is defined as being groundless or not made in good faith. So what the court, the Supreme Court judge did here, is he broke down his, his decision in those two sections, groundlessness and bad, lack of bad faith. Next, next slide. He, he made so much, I would say, short shrift, not, not in a negative sense, but there wasn't much to say. That what the plaintiffs were seeking just wasn't available from the parties they sued. They couldn't get the relief, so you know, it was groundless. And he basically said, and that's a quote, the legal position is flat wrong as a matter of law. So there was no, it was groundless. There was no just substantial justification. In reading the opinion, there was a minute entry, there really wasn't any justification um, as, as far as could be determined as against these defendants. Next slide. The court then spent some time on lack of good faith. Um, and he said that it resembles the ulterior purpose element of the abusive process. Abusive process. Um, and the court said that it was shown when there was improper motive for the lawsuit and it was shown by its actions and it was a primarily a primary uh, motivation, not just incidental. Um, and he basically said, said the plaintiff is gaslighting uh, in the case. And I define gaslighting because I looked at it, you hear it on the news, I'm saying, what are they talking about? So it's the action of tricking or controlling someone by making them believe that they're, that things that are not true. Um, I'm not gonna address whether that, that comes into some of the things that we uh, discussed earlier, but the court was pretty um, uh, negative with regard to the, the counsel uh, claiming, or with regard to, to the plaintiff, my counsel, plaintiff, um, that saying that they're gaslighting, uh, saying things, trying to get people to believe things that are not true. Next, next slide. Okay, he goes on, he went on to discuss that the conduct before and during the litigation demonstrated the state of mind, which um, those of you who are practicing, if you get anything that's, uh, and I'm not even suggesting that it has to be a case that has some public interest, it's why, you know, clients should keep their mouth shut. Um, you know, also that there were no efforts to determine the validity of the claim before it was asserted. Um, there were facts that were available um, that could have been looked into. Um, they could have done things post-filing to get rid of the invalid claims and the outcome of the controversy, which seems to me a little um, circular because the judge who's deciding that there was no, there was lack of good faith and no substantial justification is the one who had control over the outcome of the controversy because he dismissed the case. But that was a consideration. Next slide. And finally, the, again, the plaintiffs had argued we had a First Amendment right to bring this case. And he said that it doesn't give a litigant the right to file and maintain a groundless lawsuit, which was pretty hard. Um, hey, we have now concluded, well, not bad, nine minutes early. Are there any, I, I think I've covered all the comments and questions that came up. Uh, does anyone have any comments or questions they'd like to address at this time? Um, I'll ask Charles, since I, I made that comment earlier about being available, I know if judges talk to other judges under, under the code, um, that's usually okay, but if they go to, quote, an expert, um, 
the expert has to <laughs> submit an, an, a, a uh, amicus brief on the on the issue. I I think that I could not tell anyone or, or assist anyone who had a question about attorney's fees on a matter that was pending before them as either as a pro tem because I'd be in that category of perhaps being an expert and not as a fellow judge because I would not be, my view is you're only a, a judge when you've been assigned on a particular day in a particular court. So uh, I, is that, is that a, Feel, feel free to turn your camera on if you want to ask a question. Uh, I, I do want to uh, talk about 12349. Uh, that is really extreme. Uh, it, it, you know, treat, let, treat that like holding an attorney in contempt of court. Uh, before you do something like that, talk to a colleague or talk to a trusted advisor because that, that is a really extreme thing to do. Uh, and I'm going to share something else. All right, and we're going to talk about this next week in our updates class. Uh, but uh, uh, House Bill 2170 has amended uh, 121572. It does allow for the award of attorney, and actually, it, it awarded both garnishment statutes. It does allow for awards of attorney's fees and garnishments. If it's allowed by the contract or judgment, it does not say reasonable, by the way. Um, uh, so attorneys may point that out. And it doesn't require a China doll affidavit. I'm going to suggest that the best practice would be that if it's anything other than a nominal amount, uh, that you would require a China doll affidavit just as you would in any other instance. So we may have a best practice coming out on that. So do we have any other questions? Let me. This conference will now be recorded. Okay, uh, so again, the materials are going to be in Hightail. Uh, if you want uh, credit for it, turn the project certificate to Taj. Taj, do you have anything else that, that you want to say? No, I'm going to be sending out the co-jet as soon as this uh, meeting ends. So everyone will receive the co-jet immediately, and then I will send the link with the YouTube for those who aren't here as soon as I get it from you, Charles. And so uh, thank you again, Steve. Uh, you, you did a, a oh, we do have a comment. Uh, you did a great deal of work here, and so uh, thank you. Everyone have a great weekend. Uh, don't play with firecrackers or fireworks. Uh, holidays over and, and we don't want anyone getting hurt. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you all.